would you open your Bibles to John chapter 2? So that's going to be where we're going to study this morning, verses 1 through 12. Uh, the title of the sermon is, God saves the best for last. Jesus, the water, and the wine. Um, I was so blessed as I listened to Alan's sermon last week, and I, I was encouraged and particularly liked his title, The Pointer and the Point. The Pointer and the Point. And that text highlighted how John the Baptist was used by God to point people to Jesus. He was the pointer. He wasn't the point. Jesus was the point. And this morning, we're really going to learn a similar lesson about how Jesus himself actually fulfills both roles and is himself the pointer and the point. <laughs> uh, he is the one sent by God to save us from our sins. And he gives us signs. So be thinking, we're going to hear that word a lot over these next few chapters. He gives us signs that point out and prove to us that he is the Messiah. So would you stand with me as we read God's holy and inerrant and inspired and sufficient and loving word to us. Guys, aren't we glad that God speaks to us through his word? Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Well, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Well, Lord, we pray that you would accomplish your purpose for this text in our hearts. How we long to see you glorified. How we want to believe in you more. Thank you for the grace that you've given every Christian to believe. But Lord, we, we just love that prayer. Lord, we believe. But would you help our unbelief? Help us to grow stronger as believers in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, in our introductory sermon to our series in the Gospel of John, we learned that being familiar with the truths taught in John does, does not always translate into faithfulness. Um, does not always translate into surrendering to the truths that we're familiar with or obeying the truths that we're familiar with. We learned that familiarity can breed apathy unless familiarity is united with being a lifelong learner, uh, a lifelong learner of God's word, trusting God and obeying God. Nothing wrong with familiarity as long as you're continuing to learn and grow and you're not satisfied with just being familiar with the things of God. 
You know, familiarity can also result in relegating something as irrelevant. Many of you know that my, my, grand, my, my grandparents on my dad's side were from Damascus, Syria. And there's so many stories about my grandfather. In Arabic, jiddo is the word for grandfather. So that's what I called him, jiddo. And I'll never forget the story my dad told me about him going to my grandfather, going to Jiddo, and saying, hey, Pops, he called him. Hey, Pops, I've got some tickets to go see the Dodgers in a playoff game at Dodger Stadium. Well, if you know me, I mean, I really like baseball. <laughs> and uh, my grandfather, my Jiddo, he listens to my dad uh, invite him to this amazing opportunity to go to a playoff game in Dodger Stadium. And this is how he replied. So, forgive my bad Arabic accent here, but I'm going to try to talk a little, sound like a little bit like him. Uh, he said, <laughs> it's bad when you start laughing before you've given the punchline, right? That's just not good. He says, uh, is, is that the game where they throw ball and hit it? Hit it with a stick? <laughs> right? And my dad says, yes, Pops, that's the one. And my grandfather said, no thanks. <laughs> I, al I already seen that one. <laughs> I already seen that game. <laughs> Jindo's familiarity with the game made even a playoff baseball game in Dodger Stadium irrelevant <laughs> because he already knew that game. He was already familiar with that, that game. You know, the great, sport of, the great sport of baseball doesn't seem as great if you think you're already familiar with it. You know, the same tendencies can happen in a marriage. Has that ever happened to you that you've just become familiar with marriage? It's led maybe to some apathy rather than deepening affection. Uh, just because you become familiar with your spouse doesn't always equal growing in intimacy, uh, the intimacy of Christ-centered fellowship with her, or treasuring him as, you, as a wife ought to. Just because you've become familiar with your job. How many of, this, of us have experienced that on our job? Or how about in church? Doesn't mean you're actively engaged in seeking to grow in your character and talents so you can serve the people you worship with or work with with greater passion and for the good of those who you work with. You know, when this kind of familiarity gets a foothold in our hearts, apathy toward others and considering things or people as irrelevant typically are never far behind. Has this ever happened to you in your Bible reading? Has this ever happened to you in your Bible reading? What's the effect on your soul when you come across a story in your Bible that you consider yourself already familiar with? Do you press in to learn more about Christ in the passage than you have known before? Or do you just subtly give yourself permission to pass over it, maybe skim over it, maybe even skip it, especially if you're trying to read through your Bible in a year? Six chapters I have to read today? I already am familiar with this one so we can get done with our devotions a bit sooner that morning and it still have it count as devotions, right? I mean, I'm sorry, guys. I'm just describing my yucky heart. I'm sure this doesn't relate to any of you. When you read the Bible that way or when you listen to sermons that way, does Jesus become bigger or smaller in your eyes? Isn't it amazing how reading our Bibles only with familiar eyes rather than fresh eyes, can actually make Jesus smaller 
There's a lot of Bible reading people who don't read to grow an affection and passion for Jesus. They're just reading familiar stories that they think they already know. And they're reading their Bibles and Jesus is getting smaller in their eyes. Oh God. When we read our familiar text this morning, what was your first experience of that text? Be honest. Be honest. I'm familiar with that passage. And so maybe checking out is an option today. Or, oh no, I, I want to understand this passage better. And I want to check out. I want to lean in. Well, we're going to use a phrase that I contacted pastor that I thought coined this phrase and he said he didn't coin it so I don't know who coined this phrase but I'm going to use it anyway can we just pray just for a short prayer and let's pray it every time we open the gospel of John in this series and would you even consider praying this before you have your morning devotions Lord give me fresh eyes for familiar things I think it's a humbling of ourselves that's good. It's acknowledging that we see through a glass darkly. Oh Lord, please, as we study this wedding at Cana and, and the familiar story of Jesus turning the water into wine, please, Lord, give us fresh eyes for familiar things that we could follow you more closely. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our main point this morning is this. When we believe in Christ as our purifier, we experience Christ as our joy. And I hope you'll see that as we unpack the text this morning. The first point this morning is that Jesus reveals how empty we are without him. I don't know if you've ever thought about that in this text, but let's dig in and let's see if that's there. Jesus reveals just how empty we are without him. Now, before I dig in a little bit, heart to heart, where are you feeling a little bit empty? And listen, there can be great parts of your life that are doing well in the Lord and stuff, but there are parts that you're a little bit more familiar with that, man, I've just got some emptiness in this category of my heart. It might not even just be your whole life is empty, but it could be just a category. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then chances are you're experiencing emptiness in ways that you didn't even understand. So let's, let's dig into this. Let's remember, John is such a masterpiece. He, it, the book can be divided into two main sections. Chapters 1 through 11 are sometimes called the book of signs. And, and that's because it documents seven miraculous signs that Jesus performed as he launched his public ministry. The first of which we're studying today, and it's when he turns the water into wine. Chapter 12 until the end of the book is sometimes called the book of glory. And that's because it focuses on the glory of Christ in his sufferings and in his death and in his resurrection. You're going to see a little bit of both in the text today because Jesus is going to use this phrase, my hour has not yet come. And he's going to say that several times between chapters 1 and chapters 11. And then the, the, chapter 12 is almost like the hinge of the book. You get to chapter 12 and Jesus starts saying, my hour has come. My hour has come. And what he's talking about is his, the approach of his death, burial, and resurrection is just about to take place. He's about to be seen for who he really is. And the cross is the greatest display of who Jesus really, really is. So that's what, I think it's important to remember those things. So John is very strategic in calling these miracles Signs. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't do that. They, they refer to them as works of power or miracles. John says, let's include signs. They're signs that are intended to reveal that Jesus is the Messiah. 
And, and what's the important point of seeing him as, as Messiah? So that you would believe in him. That you would believe in him as your Lord and Savior. So a sign as defined in the book of John is a miraculous event that not only reveals God's power, but it goes beyond that to signify a truth about Christ as the Messiah. So often, so do you see, even the sign is a pointer. But the sign is not saying, pay attention to me. What you most need in your life is a miracle. I'm your, I'm your boy. <laughs> I'm the miracle you need. It, like, the, like the miracle is an end in itself. And, and the miracle is, the sign, the miracle is actually saying, no, not to me, not to me, but to you be glory. The, the sign points away from itself unto Jesus. That's what, what's happening here. And that's where I think we can really mess up on this story of the water turned to wine. Because we put a lot of focus on the power of the miracle. And that the miracle is going to carry the day. No, the miracle doesn't carry the day. The Messiah carries the day. And the miracle is just revealing him to us more clearly. Does that make sense? Is it, are you kind of with me with there? So it's not a miracle that's performed for the miracle's sake. But it points beyond the miracle to the miracle maker Jesus. So here comes the wedding. The wedding at Cana. This was, I always loved this because our youngest just got married a few weeks ago. And so very familiar with weddings. I also like the, did you notice, <laughs> this is way off the notes, I'm sorry. Do you notice it says that they actually invited Jesus to their wedding? You guys, I'm, my heart is broken and I'm heart sick about how many weddings I've attended that it doesn't appear Jesus wasn't even invited. And they're Christian weddings. Please, if you're younger, if you're single, you're looking toward marriage one day, please invite Jesus to your wedding. Please have Jesus as the center of your life. How can you do, if, if he's the center of your life, how can he not be the center of your wedding? Okay, commercial over, get on with this. So it's a wedding at Cana. Cana is this small town. It's really an insignificant town. The other gospel writers don't mention it. Uh, it is mentioned twice in the book of John. It's about 10 miles from Nazareth. And so the bride and the groom were likely known by at least Mary, if not both Mary and Jesus. And you kind of get a hint, hint of that when, when Mary seeming to take a lot of responsibility here, coming to Jesus to say... They're out of wine. They're out of wine. She seems to have to be feeling some of the weight of that burden. And we'll go deeper into that in just a minute. Um, Jesus was displayed so gloriously in chapter 1 as the word who had no beginning and no end. He is God the son through whom everything was made. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Guys, I'm going, I'm going someplace with this. He is the high and holy God. And yet he draws near to the lowly, to the least, to the lost, to the last. I think that's why he's launching his ministry in Cana. This is what it means for God the Son to come near to us as God the Savior. He doesn't just go to a big city with all its bright lights and famous people. He goes to Cana. He launches his public ministry in an insignificant town with ordinary fallen and broken people so that they can experience the Savior who pours out grace upon grace for all who would believe in him. It would be like Jesus coming to West Texas. <laughs> to launch his public ministry. And instead of starting in El Paso or Lubbock or Amarillo or Midland, Odessa, he starts in no trees. <laughs> and if you're, if, if you're from no, listen, way to go, no trees. We are big fans. I'm, I'm not, not mocking no trees. It's just a little, I, I don't know. You, have, you been to, have you been to no trees? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why would you go to no trees? Anyway, no trees. All I know no trees of is there's a few houses to one side and a post office and maybe a little grocery store. 
You know, so it's nothing big. Or another side, this is, you guys, you gave study time to this? Yeah, I Googled, what are the smallest towns in West Texas? And no trees and Mentone came up. Anybody from Mentone? Do you know where Mentone is? Yeah, you do? Oh, wait, you guys are West Texans. That's awesome. Well, can you imagine Jesus coming and saying, let's, la <laughs> let's launch this world-changing ministry in no trees or in Mentone. But aren't you glad he does? Because essentially you and I are just no trees. I'm just no trees, Rays, <laughs> right? I'm, I am a nothing, insignificant, I mean, made in the image of God, but so fallen and broken and rebellious and treasonous to my Savior. Oh, I'm so glad that the high and holy God draws near to sinners like me. And so he comes in to Cana. And this wedding, it's not just like the weddings that, that we do. Uh, we had time limits based on venues and all these things, right? Um, this wedding is a very special celebration because these weddings in that culture lasted for about a week. Uh, the bride and groom were celebrated as though they were king and queen, which really should give you some sense of gospel imagery about the second coming of Jesus and that wedding feast. But the bride and groom, they're celebrated. And life was so hard in these days. Poverty was common. Sickness was so prevalent. And one of the most joyous times for everyone was a week-long wedding celebration. This was one place where people could hope that they could find some joy in their journey. And if there wasn't joy to be found in a wedding, is there any joy to be found? That's kind of the, the backstory here. So when Mary comes to say that they had no wine, she's not just coming to say, oh, can you believe they didn't plan well? Or can you coming to say, a lot of people came who didn't RSVP. <laughs> Just all the wedding things. You know, all the things that happen with weddings. Um, and she's not merely implying, hey, Jesus, just go to the nearest pinkies <laughs> or the nearest HEB and get some more Cabernet. That's not the point of it either. This was seen as a crisis. And so I want to dig a little bit here. Because I think, there's some, I think there's something in this text that we've, we've just missed because of our familiarity with it. And we've missed this sense of despair, this sense of emptiness that is being felt in this culture at that time, that God is actually wanting the text to point out to where we are despairing and where we're empty in our own hearts when we're not being satisfied with Christ alone. So let's dig a little bit deeper. At the minimum, you could have been seen as being unloving or uncaring for your guests. Sort of how when we have a church potluck and we realize that the last people in line are only going to get the refried beans and a chip. Because all of the Rosa's fajita meat is already gone. My, my, dad, my dad grew up in, definitely we're a poor family, a large family, poor family, and they went to eat in another family that my dad's family had five kids, six kids, and they went to a family that, that uh, 10, 11 kids, and so they were waiting for the dinner to be served, and they, they kept hearing the mom in the kitchen yelling out to, her, to the family, FHB on the beans! FHB on the beans? So he asked, my dad asked his buddy, what in, the world, what in the world is FHB on the beans? And my buddy says, it means family hold back. <laughs> because we're running out of food. <laughs> because we're running. So if you hear any of us saying in the fellowship hall, FHB on whatever. So, uh, listen. It's, it's far, far worse. The despair that they're experiencing is a crushing sense of despair. It's not just politeness or bad planning. This is viewed really as catastrophic, not only for that moment, but this failure 
would label the groom and the bride and their families for a lifetime. It, it, some commentators said that there was actually legal liability here, that you could be sued for not providing enough wine. The thought was that the weddings you attended, the, the weddings that you attended, and let me put it this way, dude, you came to my wedding and I had plenty of wine. And now I'm coming to your wedding and you're holding out. And so they would sue each other. It was, a, it was a culture of hospitality for sure, but there was some sense of reciprocity. There was some sense of, hey, I served you. You better serve me. And if you didn't, you became like the lowest caste. There was a, there was a lot of shame-based stuff in this culture. And so you became like the lowest caste. You became somewhat of the leper of the community. Because you didn't do your part. You didn't do enough to bring me joy. My already empty life. I'm looking for hope and joy. And everywhere I look, I go to your wedding. And you run out of wine. I want you to start to see a sense of this despair. But it's not a despair because I like Cabernet. It's a despair because my soul is empty and I'm looking for something to fill it. That's what's happening here. The text is highlighting the despair and the emptiness and the hopelessness people feel when, when they place their trust uh, in others for human happiness and then that fails them. But the real discovery that is needed is not that you're empty because of what you don't have in this world. We, our kids grew up on Donut Man. Does anyone even know what Donut Man is anymore? If you don't, hardly anybody knows life without Jesus is like a donut, like a donut. I mean, there's a point to this. Like a donut, life without Jesus is like a donut. Because there's a hole in the middle of your heart. Not the best gospel. <laughs> so when I'm talking about emptiness, I'm not talking about the hole in your heart. I'm talking about how full your heart is with sin. And the judgment your sin deserves. That's why you feel so empty. It's not, you just don't need Jesus to come and fill the little hole in your little blessed heart, right? Um, this is about sinfulness and self-reliance and self-sufficiency and idolatry. Early in Jesus' ministry, he's teaching that fallen, sinful human beings enter into the saving and satisfying joy of the Lord only through the door of, of despairing about their emptiness without Christ. And how they can do nothing on their own to fill the emptiness by themselves. Fullness in the Lord can only come through a humble recognition and confession of how empty you are without the Lord. I'm going to say that again. Fullness in the Lord can only come through a recognition and confession of how empty you are without the Lord. Martin Luther spoke to this in such a wonderful way, and this is in your notes. God has assuredly promised his grace to the humble. That is to those who lament and despair of themselves. But no man can thoroughly can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, devices, endeavors, will, and works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely God alone. For as long as he is persuaded that he himself can do even the least thing toward his salvation, he retains some self-confidence. And he doesn't altogether despair of himself. And therefore he's not humbled before God. But presumes that there is or at least hopes or desires that there may be some place, time, and work for him. 
by which he may at length attain to salvation. But when a man has no doubt that, that everything depends on the will of God, then he completely despairs of himself and chooses nothing for himself, but waits for God to work. Then he has come close to grace. That's the emptiness that's being portrayed here. In our world of pains and discomforts and sicknesses, we know that when we get a headache, uh, we take some ibuprofen and we drink some water because maybe we're dehydrated. When we get cancer, we go for chemotherapy. In, in other words, the seriousness of the sickness dictates the seriousness of the kind of cure you pursue. If you see your sin as just a headache rather than a cancer, you're never going to look to Christ. You're going to keep looking to yourself to fill that emptiness instead of humbling yourself and despairing of your self-sufficiency and your self-effort and turning to Christ alone to give you what only He can give you for that cure that you so desperately need. This was a mistake of the church at Laodicea. Jesus diagnosed their error by saying, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Precious ones, if we don't despair of our sinfulness and our emptiness without Christ, we won't seek the best medicine that is Christ. And we won't seek and cherish his work on the cross. We're going to have an ongoing need for repentance and faith. So certainly you can see how that would apply to an unbeliever. But let me talk to you as a Christian. How often do you despair of your own efforts? How often do you come to a place of just, I'm at an end of myself. And my only hope is Jesus. What I think we typically do when we're feeling empty is we get busy. It's almost like an anesthesia. The more I try to satisfy that ache of emptiness and my need to humble myself and look to Jesus alone for the fullness that I'm looking for, the more I turn to just trying to keep my schedule. I got to keep my schedule. Man. Somebody once said, you would, your life would be a lot more happy if you, if you weren't as concerned about your to-do list as you were your to-love list. We, we're busy, don't we? Got to ignore. I, I got to ignore this growing emptiness of my soul. So I'm going to get busy. I'm going to do more work. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try to make up for my sins. I'm going to be self-atoning. I'll, I'll, I'll do anything I can possibly do. I'll use entertainment. I'll do all these things to keep from this horrible feeling of despair that I can't do anything and I need Jesus to do everything. So now when you see, now Mary comes. There's a lot of, lot of ground to cover to say this. Now Mary comes and says, they have no wine. They've come to an end of themselves. The, 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 the thing that they look to for joy is gone. And she turns to Jesus and asks him to do something about it. And Jesus will. But maybe not the way you would think. And that's where we get into this next part of the story. Jesus says this, Woman, what does this have to do with me? So this isn't woman like, I don't know what you would portray that, like some chauvinistic, male chauvinist, self-righteous, arrogant, thinks he's better than women or God's gift to women. You know, that kind of guy. I always picture like this pot-bellied guy sitting on a porch or something with his shotgun and his bottle of whiskey and, 
yelling into the house, woman, where's, where's my grits? I don't know what. <laughs> that's, that's not at all what's going on here. Um, Jesus wasn't being self-righteous or demeaning to his mom. This was not being rude, but this was also not the normal way a son would speak to his mother. And by the way, kids, don't try that at home. (laughs) Okay? You call that precious mom of yours precious mom? But why did Jesus say woman? Well, there's an exhortation and instruction here. The exhortation is Jesus is clarifying and defining his relationship with Mary. He's making it clear that Jesus is not going to respond to Mary because she has an inside track. <laughs> that, that she's a little less sinful. And there's, there's, there are denominations that have really built this kind of thing into their doctrine. Uh, that Mary didn't need the grace that you and I would need. Uh, No, she needed that grace. And so Jesus is making it clear that that there is a a well-defined understanding between he and Mary. Mary is like every other sinner, and she needs to understand that it is faith, not family, that makes you a friend of Jesus. That's what makes you a friend of Jesus. It's faith. She needed Jesus' saving grace as much as everyone else. And Jesus exalts his sonship to the heavenly father. That's the other part of this. Jesus is exalting his sonship to God, his father, above his sonship to his earthly mother. The words are, are, are specific. They're strategically chosen to reveal a radical allegiance to God's will above his mother's will and above all human attachments and affections. Have you guys noticed... I've certainly seen it in Midland. I think, you know, I think it's a lot in Bible Belt where family can be prized. You know, it's easy to make family an idol. And it's hard to, I hate to, I hate to say that, but I, you know, there, there's ways I make Jan an idol. I, I look to her for what only Jesus can give me. I look to my kids for what only Jesus can give me. I, I, I think that, that something in the world can give my kids something that only Jesus can give them. And, and so there's a lot of lessons really being taught here that it's God's will that has to prevail above all human attachments and affections. But I think also Jesus was giving her a quick Bible study and reminding her of what was said in Genesis about the seed of the woman that would be wounded and yet still crush the head of the serpent. This was a reminder that she was indeed that woman and he was indeed that seed and that she needed to see him as the one who saves us from our sin and the judgment our sins deserve. We are first and foremost to come to him for our spiritual needs, not our felt needs. And so Jesus is just making sure, we're going to redefine some things here. We're going to make sure that that people know that he has to only do the will of him who sent me. And then he goes further and he says, my hour is not yet come. It's, It's not yet time for me to reveal my full glory through my death and resurrection. That's not here yet, but... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give a sign about that death and what that death would accomplish. A sign that reveals that I am the one to save people from their sins, purify their hearts, and give them lasting joy. And you got to commend Mary here. She seems to have gotten the point. Because what's her next step? She says, whatever he says to do, do it. That's just good counsel, isn't it? That might be a prophetic word for someone this morning. Maybe a couple of you are caught between two opinions. And you have a sense of what the Lord is telling you to do. And it's rooted in Scripture. That's where it has to be rooted. It's rooted in Scripture. But for whatever reason, you're pausing. I don't know if it's fear. I don't know if it's a fear of being rejected or I don't know what it might be. Maybe giving up on a dream that you've had. I don't know what it might be. What he tells you to do, 
Do it. Do it. Second point is Jesus reveals that he is the only one who can purify our hearts. And that's in this verses 6 through 9. If Jesus was just interested in demonstrating his power or just doing a miracle, he could have simply asked people to raise their empty glasses in a toast to the, to the happy couple. And once the toast is made um, and people lower their glasses, they find them filled with wine. That would have been a miracle. Like he could have done that. Um, and, then, and then regardless of how much you drink, you just keep putting it down and you just keep going, this is awesome. <laughs> I know a lot of college parties that would have liked that. You know, that you're just, oh, this is great. I never run dry. No, he chose not to do it that way. Jesus' goal was not to merely give a miracle, but to give a sign that would reveal that he's the Messiah. The miracle is not what you most need. The Messiah is what you most need. Probably some of us are, are praying for miracles in this room, and we should. God would, would, would say, come unto me. Ask big things of a big God. But don't think that the miracle is what's going to change your life. The Messiah is going to change your life. So, so that's why we go to him with our, with our desires. We, even with forgiveness, we don't... We don't go to Jesus and then with the goal of getting forgiveness. That's a really good thing. But you see where I'm, high, I'm making actually the forgiveness what I most need. No, no. Go to Jesus, you'll get forgiveness, right? Go to Jesus and you get mercy and grace. Go to Jesus and you get wisdom. It's amazing. We can get a little bit backwards and we start actually taking our eyes off of Jesus. I told somebody the other day, Jesus didn't pose for the Heisman Trophy, right? <laughs> Just, you know, he's not doing one of these things that, that you know, we've, he's trying to, no. Oh my gosh, guys, go to Jesus, and you'll get the treasure of treasures. That's what Josh was having us sing about today. Go to Jesus for your treasure. So that's, that's why he's not just doing a miracle for the sake of a miracle. Let's, you want to talk about miracles? Well, let's talk about that. There was certainly a miracle here. So what we don't want to do in scripture, guys, we don't want, we want to honor two things. We want to honor the fact that God works miracles. And he does things to bless people's lives. But we also want to honor the deeper truth that he's wanting to communicate that will change our lives, not just give us a temporary blessing. Amen? So that's, that's what we're trying to strike that balance here. So here's what he does. He asks his servants to fill the purification pots with water, six of them. Each pot holds 20 to 30 gallons. You saw that in the text. So this was about 180 gallons of water. These were pots that were to be used for ceremonial purification and washing your hands, washing your hands or utensils, and that was used in the worship of God. But the focal point of the purification pots were a reminder that in order to worship God, you had to be clean. It's just that was, they were sitting in the corner, but they were a reminder, who can approach the holy hill of God? If there's got to be cleanliness. There's got to be a purification from the sins that we're so easily and constantly guilty of. So these were, these were pots for purification. Jesus could have had the water put in people's cups. So if it's a water to wine deal, okay, well, let's put wine in people's cups. Or let's put, let's put, no, let's put water in people's cups. Or let's put water in pitchers on the table. But he had them put the water in purification pots because that's what we most needed. We needed a pure heart. That's what I, that was an old song. Alan, you probably remember that. This song we used to sing, A Pure Heart. That's what I long for. A heart that follows hard after thee. A pure heart. That's the longing of the human heart. And that's what's happening here. 
So he puts the water in purification pots, and it's in those pots that the water is turned to wine. He's giving a sign that he is fulfilling and exceeding the Old Testament ceremonial laws for purification. They, this was, these were good laws. These purification laws were good. They taught us that we needed to be pure to have a right relationship with, with God. But these this water could only wash the hands. They couldn't go deep and cleanse the sin-stained heart of the human being. It, could, it just couldn't do it. Jesus is declaring, I am the perfect purifier. I am the perfect purifier. Good works won't cleanse your life, won't change your heart. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash me clean. And it's no accident then that when Jesus serves the Last Supper, he refers to the wine as his blood that washes and forgives sins and gives life everlasting for those who believe. And so let's go a little bit deeper because for years, so, so here, I'll just confess to you, I needed fresh eyes for familiar things. I'm 63 years old. I've, the Lord saved me when I was 19. I'm asking for the fruit of self-control. I always thought the biggest miracle in this story was how much water was turned to wine. If you look at this text, that's not what the text is saying is the best thing about this miracle. Can you go back and look at it, Rich, real quick? It's, look at it in verses 10 through 12. And when somebody gets it, we're getting a little bit big to do audience participation, but. They believed. They believed. Rewind a little bit. They revealed his glory. Rewind a little bit. What was the biggest miracle about the water being turned to wine? <laughs> there it is. It wasn't the quantity of the wine that was the miracle. It was the quality. What in the world are you doing? You've saved the best for now? And again, I just as I was praying for you, I just felt like there was multiple hearts here that need that word. Because you, we tend to disqualify ourselves from the blessings of the Lord. Or we think, you know, I've made such a mess of myself since I've been saved that I'm just, I'm just willing to accept the breadcrumbs from Jesus' table. And, and Jesus would look at you and say, I saved the best for now. He loves you. He loves you. What's going on here? It's the quality of the wine. And he's saying, wait, you've saved the best for last. This is the best wine I've ever tasted. This is a totally new experience. This is a totally new way of living. You know what it's almost like? It's almost like a new order of things has come to us in Jesus. Right? I know what you want to go. Duh. I mean, oh, yes, of course. That's what's happening here. A new order is coming into the world. The fallen condition of mankind. Jesus has come to rescue us. Oh, listen. And so, so be, in, in the weeks ahead, be, be, have your radars up. So chapter 2, he makes new wine. At the end of chapter 2, he announces the raising up of a new temple. In chapter 3, he tells of the importance of a new birth. In chapter 4, he tells the woman at the well that there is now a new way of worshiping God. And it is through the Son, Jesus Christ. Paul continues that theme in 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away and the new has come. 
Leon Morris, a great commentator in, in, uh, in the book of John, he says it this way. This is so good. Jesus changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity, the water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and fullness of eternal life in Christ. Jesus changes the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. Isn't that so good? It is just so good. And at chapter 117, what did we read already? The law was given through Moses. Ah, oh, that was good. That was grace. We're not going, yeah, poor yucky Moses. Moses bad, Jesus good. No, no, it's not it at all. Grace was given us through Moses. The law, there was grace in the law. But grace and truth have come in Christ. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. You guys, he doesn't just bring forgiveness from sin. Seek him for that afresh today. Experience afresh the forgiveness that Jesus Jesus won for you at the cost of his life. Experience that afresh. But also, please leave here knowing he changes our hearts. He gives us a new heart, a heart that can be freshly affectionate from him, for him, even if you've been apathetic. For those of you who feel like, man, I've been in a season of dryness and a season of, of, of I just numbness. I don't know what other word to use. And God would say, come unto me and let me give you fresh affection for my son. That's the biggest miracle you could ever hope for from this Sunday service this morning. Amen? Oh, you guys. So, there's, so um, John Bunyan, you've heard Alan and me, different ones quote this. I love this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. <laughs> That's the good news here. So you have to understand that wine is symbolic of joy and blessing and abundance from God throughout Scripture. So the wedding at Cana was also teaching us that Jesus is not just wanting to give you a little joy now that you're just going to run out of later. But he's coming to give you the promise of everlasting joy. You see, the bridegroom, this is the last little point. And you notice that the master, I guess like the master of ceremonies kind of thing, don't think DJ. <laughs> All the things that go on in weddings, right? You know, uh, the master of ceremony comes. He doesn't come to the bride's family. The bride pays for the wedding, right? He doesn't come to the bride. He comes to the groom. Well, in this story, the groom of this feast failed. Aren't you glad that there's a better groom? And his name is Jesus. And he is never going to fail us. In fact, the wedding of Cana, I think, is a foretaste of what we all can expect at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And now, <laughs> let's bring it in. And now, the disciples are seeing gospel glimpses of gospel glory and the sign that Jesus is not just a miracle worker. He's the Messiah who has come to save us from our sin. And we believe, don't we? By God's grace, we believe. He is the perfect purifier so we can experience the joy of the Lord. Let's stand. Josh, I know I'm running a little bit late, but I think this would be, if you need to go, totally understand that, totally understand that. If you can stay just a song more, I think you will just love to sing this song unto the Lord as a response to what we're learning today. Uh, so, you know, the application, you know, sometimes the application, so go and, and this and that and this and that. The application is believe. <laughs> believe him. Believe that your best days aren't, aren't in the past. Your best day is Jesus, today and always.